0: Hello space fans and welcome to this Astro Coffee Hangout. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and I know you're excited about today's hangout because we are going to be talking about exomoons. That's right. It's not exciting enough for deep astronomy space fans to talk about planets around other stars. Oh no, we need more. You guys want exomoons, and we you ask about it every single time. Every hangout we have on exoplanets or life in the universe gets quickly dominated with questions like, well, what about exomoons? Can you see can we see any exomoons yet? Well, Today is your day, exomoon fans, because my guest today has been using the Hubble and Kepler space telescope data to look at one of the exoplanet candidates from the Kepler mission, an exoplanet around the star known as Kepler-1625. It's a star located some 8,000 light years away, and not surprisingly, in the constellation Cygnus the Swan, because that's where Kepler stared for five years. Well, Kepler-1625 has a is a has a huge gas giant, which is called Kepler-1625b, in orbit around it. And maybe, just maybe, going around that might be an exomoon. A Well, it might be a moon, but we call them exomoons, if we would okay so today we're going to be talking about with the first author of the paper that appeared in the journal science advances and describes these observations uh in detail and i put a link to that paper in the description box in, uh, on youtube and so you can follow along it's also on deep astronomy space slash live and before i start though i need to do i need to take care of a little bit of business um Before I I need to let you guys know that these hangouts are sponsored and endorsed by the American Astronomical and the American Astronautical Societies. And they are designed to bring the latest discoveries and advances in astronomy directly to you by inviting the astronomers who are doing the work. And we bring them here to these Hangouts. And we hope you will ask our guest questions uh, live. But I know many of you are probably watching the VOD of this. Uh, or maybe you're listening to the podcast version of this broadcast. So, uh, w- which is after the fact. and But I still want to welcome you. And I would invite you to leave comments in the description box below uh, anyway. And I'll try to get to them if I can. not Maybe I can forward them on to um, my guest. And he might be able to take some time to answer. Uh, let me just check the streams real quick. Uh, okay. Yep. So far, no big disasters. Everybody is saying, listening and responding. So apparently I'm being heard, which is always a good sign. Uh, okay. So let's go ahead and get started. Oh, I should mention that, um, Carol Christian, my co-host is what is on travel today and was not able to join us. Um, nothing to do with the hurricane. At least as far as I know, uh, she does drive back and forth between Baltimore and Florida quite a bit. And I'm here in central Florida and the sun is shining and we never had any power outages. It missed us. So we're all safe and sound here in central Florida. Central Florida. So that's always a relief. We dealt with ours last year. Or so and the year before that. So I guess it's the panhandle's turn. I don't know. But uh, anyway, let me bring up my uh, my guest today. Uh, his name is uh, doctor is Alex Tici. He is from he is an NSF research fellow at Columbia University. He's also the first author of the paper we're going to be talking about. Welcome, Alex, to our humble little hangout. It's good to see you. Thank you very much for having me. The weather looks great where you are
1: uh yeah it was, it's been lovely the last couple of days <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> thankfully
0: well hopefully you're not going to get a lot of um you're not going to get a lot of uh yuckiness from from uh, f- uh from michael as it heads its way northeast but uh yeah I, hopefully not. i think we'll it's gonna now. i think it's gonna even affect dc at some point but i'm not totally oh is it really huh? i'm not yeah i'm not totally sure uh okay so um you let's let's start like we always do with a summary of your research you've been using kepler and hubble data so why don't without giving away all of the stuff i've got lots of plots here and and things like that that we're going to go through in detail uh why don't you give us a start uh, give us an overview of the research question you were trying to ask and then we'll talk about maybe the details of the star system itself and the planet and the moon
1: Sure. Yeah. So we uh, originally were performing an analysis of uh, many different uh, planets, almost 300 planets in the Kepler data. Uh, And in the course of doing that work, uh, we identified this single candidate, uh, Kepler 1625b, which looked, uh, had to, you know, what we expect a moon to look like with a planet. We uh, we're looking at transits of the planet. So this is what happens when a planet passes in front of a star, uh, from our point of view. The planet back, blocks out a little bit of the starlight. So if you're monitoring the brightness of the star over time, you'll see a little dip in the intensity of the starlight. And if there's a moon uh, orbiting that planet, then we'll see a big dip due to the transit of the planet, and we'll see a smaller dip uh, due to the transit of the moon. So this was the signal that we thought we saw in the uh, Kepler data. It looked pretty convincing and tantalizing, but not uh, not quite enough to claim a discovery. Uh, So what we really felt was that uh, we needed a follow-up observation with Hubble. And uh, so we asked for that time and we were awarded it to about 26, uh, 26 orbits on Hubble, which amounts to about 40 hours uh, time on target. We monitor the brightness of the star again when the planet transited in October, 2017. And that's, uh, you know, so that was the, the crux of this uh, latest uh, effort.
0: Great, you know, now the uh, b- because, because you started with Kepler data, is is Kepler sixteen twenty five B? That's is it a candidate or is it confirmed? At this and, and point, and let's explain a, the difference con- real
1: quick. Right, so it's it's considered a confirmed planet. The the uh, initial science team went through and identified candidate signals, um, and uh, eventually they had these things called threshold crossing events. They're just looking for signals that might be uh, a candidate, and then uh, sort of the next stage there is. To be called a, a Koi, this is a Kepler object of interest, uh, and then eventually, uh, you know, through some validation work, uh, the planet becomes a, uh, a full-on, uh, you know, confirmed planet, and then it gets a Kepler name, Kepler sixteen twenty five B in this case. Okay, so yeah,
0: so the okay, so uh, in and the uh, and because it uses uh, uh, Kepler, now this is also from Kepler data, not K two data, right?
1: That's right. This is the original Kepler mission. Yes, That's
0: because right. so just so you guys know, they did some amazing things with Kepler, which by the way I think is on its last leg at this point, uh, where they have uh, re recommissioned it as K two, where it looks at areas other than the constellation Cygnus. But its, it's primary mission was to stare at Cygnus uh, for uh, five years, which it did, and get all of these uh, and all of these light curves. Okay, what about sixteen twenty five B? What is it? What kind of planet is it? Give us some bits about what you know about its size and, and its orbit.
1: Right. So the planet is about the size of Jupiter. Uh, as far as we can tell, it's a little more massive. Our best, uh, estimate places it, uh, somewhere around three Jupiter masses, but that's, uh, that's not terribly well constrained, but a little more massive than Jupiter, uh, but about the same size as Jupiter. And this is what happens if you're looking at the mass radius relationship of objects around this, uh, mass, uh, or radius regime, uh, as you start putting on more mass, the, the planet actually starts shrinking a little bit. It's sort of getting crushed by its own weight. So it's about the same size as Jupiter, but a little more massive. Uh, the moon, uh, as far as uh, our modeling uh, suggests, is uh, is about the size of Neptune. And that's something that people really haven't anticipated much in the literature. We think about the solar system moons, uh, they're all you know significantly smaller than the Earth. So to see a moon of this size, uh, was, sort of, uh, was sort of unexpected. The star, uh, based on our modeling, is, uh, as uh, you pointed out, about 8,000 light years away. It's about the same mass as the Sun, but uh, larger than the Sun. We think it's climbing the giant branch. So we know these the red giants exist. Think about Betelgeuse in the constellation of Orion. This is an enormous star. I think the size of uh, Betelgeuse is about the size of uh, our uh, inner solar system. Uh, so not nearly as large as that, but because we think the star is in a late stage of its evolution, it is on its way to becoming uh, a red giant.
0: Okay. And so while you were talking, I was showing that um, that animation of the moon going behind the, the gas giant uh, that NASA had, had created to give sort of an idea of the scale of these things. So a Neptune-sized exomoon. This, how unusual do you think this is?
1: Well, that's very difficult to say right now. This is potentially the first uh, moon that we've ever discovered, so um, so we don't have any population statistics yet about these things. Uh, what I can say is that uh, you know theoretical modeling doesn't rule these things out. There's some some uh, people who have done modeling that says, okay, well, in one uh, percent or half of a percent of our models, uh, you produce a, a moon this large. So we analyzed in our uh, Earlier work, about 300 planets. We identified this one uh, object that looked like it might be a moon. So that's about the right numbers, right? Something, you know, less than 1% of the cases, you're gonna see something like this. And even though it's been uh, unanticipated, uh, you could make the argument that, uh, because it is the largest, uh, you know, because it is so large, uh, this is in some ways the lowest hanging fruit, right? We ought to see the biggest ones first, just like uh, we saw the biggest asteroids before we saw all the smaller ones. We That's a really good
0: biggest, point uh, because these dips in brightness, the bigger they are, the easier they are to see. So exactly right. you're right. That is low hanging fruit. But I want to go back to your statement about the mass. You said that mm-hmm. we it was about the size of Jupiter, but more massive. I thought the transit method didn't tell us anything about math, mass. I thought it told us about size and the period of the orbit. And did you say what the period was? I, I didn't. Uh, yeah, that's
1: anything. that's correct. Uh, we don't get a direct mass estimate from the, uh, the depth of the transit. We are chiefly measuring its size. Right. We do derive a uh, mass ratio. When we model the planet and the moon system, you can... De- you know deduce the ratio of the masses of these two objects but then in directly inferring the uh, well we have to infer the mass and so uh right. you know as i was mentioning we have a you know a pretty clean uh, understanding of this mass radius relationship so if you okay. you so- you give it a radius and you can get some probabilistic estimate of what the mass of the planet is you can do the exact same thing with the moon Uh, so you know you know the radius of the moon again from the transit and so you can get some probabilistic estimate of the of the uh, of the moon mass and so putting all of these numbers together we can you know make some inferences to the masses of these objects but it's not terribly well constrained because we don't measure it directly
0: okay so because there are models out there you and you've seen a lot of uh planets with certain sizes, we have also made radial velocity measurements, which do give you mass of of an object, then from that you can construct a relation, like you say, a mass radius relationship that seems to hold up.
1: Exactly right. Okay. Yeah, it's it's fairly well-constrained. Uh, there is a small subset of the planets that we know now that we have both size and mass re- measurements, and so we can uh, sort of look at this empirical relationship and, and make some estimates about the mass based on the size.
0: Of okay, state. all right. Well, there's something else I just learned, and I, and every time we talk about exoplanets now, I'm going to ask about this until I, I understand it right. But I learned a couple of Hangouts ago where we were talking about... Um, Uh, habitable zones um in, in a couple of weeks ago hangout where we uh i learned that the size of a rocky exoplanet the radius of it can tell us there's also a relationship about whether it might have an atmosphere or not now this is based on solar system formation and 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 evolution but they say, and do you, do you know anything about this? You may not. And if that's fine, you don't. But based on the size of a rocky planet, I guess it has to be a rocky planet, it, you can infer whether it has an atmosphere or not. Like uh, super earths. Super earths are generally sure. thought to have an atmosphere.
1: Right so we can uh, you know make some inferences this is a little outside of my uh, area of expertise but we can make some inferences about their composition you know uh, when we have a, a size and also a mass measurement you'll you know we've seen uh, Papers coming out and saying, "Oh well, this is a water world. We can tell because of this, uh, you know, uh, ma- this density of this of this world." Uh, w- with regard to the atmospheres, uh, we are this is sort of cutting edge science now. Uh, we are trying to, you know, when a planet transits, uh, passes in front of the star, uh, the light, just a little bit of the light, is passing through the atmosphere of these uh, of these worlds, and it turns out that uh, if you have, you know. Uh, atoms or molecules uh, usually in the, in this uh, atmosphere, these molecules will absorb some of that light at a very specific uh, wavelength. So we absorb more light at some wavelengths than others. And so that, you know, effectively makes the planet look larger or smaller at different wavelengths. And this is a way that people are trying to uh, measure the composition of these atmospheres. And, and sometimes you can even uh, maybe infer the mass of these objects. Uh, based on uh based on what we're seeing in the oh, okay, but good. that's really cutting edge and that's uh that's kind of where the uh, big part of the field is going
0: yeah and the context of that question was we were having a, a hangout on the uh on vulcan uh the planet you know uh, epsilon uh, epsilon uh was it 40b i'm i don't have the uh, yeah, right now but it eridani, was yeah eridani sorry um uh the uh and they were already talking in the paper about an atmosphere, and I called them to task on that. say, how can you possibly know if there's an atmosphere there if all you have are transit data? So from this was from Tess, uh, and and so uh, I just you know I thought I would uh, ask about that because it's something right. That so I still-
1: right uh, in the case of you know the Kepler observations are pretty much just white light. You know they're taking in right. Uh, Light at a broad uh, range of wavelengths. The Hubble data, by contrast, we actually do have wavelength imp- uh, information about this target from about 1.1 to 1.7 microns. Um, and so that's uh, near infrared. And so we could look at the depths of these transits at different wavelengths and try to say something about the atmosphere. Turns out that this object, this star, is so faint. Uh, that our error bars are really large and we couldn't really make a uh, very firm inferences about this atmosphere. But uh, it is, it is possible, particularly with, with uh, Hubble data.
0: Okay. I want to get to your data and I want to show the light curves, but let me get to a couple of questions real quick. Cause they're pertinent to what we're talking about. Peter Quinn is going, is this possible? This is a captured planet. This X, this Neptune size x Could it, could it have gotten there by being captured? Cause it's hard to imagine, so, isn't it? How Right. It
1: that's a, that's an excellent question. It, 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 Brings to mind, uh, for example, Neptune's largest moon, Triton, is, uh, as far as we know, a, a captured object from the Kuiper Belt. Um, this is obviously much larger than that. And so yeah. it really makes you wonder where something. Uh, like this might come from. This was really the first question that any astronomer worth their salt uh, was asking when they were uh, when they <laughs> saw this. How do you get something like this? There's basically three mechanisms to form a moon, right? We think about the cap, the uh, excuse me, the impact scenario, the way that uh, most people think that we got our moon. Uh, there's this uh, capture scenario, and then there's a disk of material around the planet uh, out of which these, uh, these moons coalesce. So before I was talking about theori- theoretical modeling, uh, potentially being able to explain something like this, a capture scenario is also, you know, somewhat feasible. I'm not a dynamicist. So I, I tend to be, a, you know, I, as an observer, I tend to let the data speak for itself. There's any number of phenomena that we have uh, observed in the universe so far that Uh, that the theorists are still debating how you can get something like this. I think about hot Jupiters. These are planets that are uh, about the size of Jupiter, but orbiting extremely close to their star some 20 years after their first discovery, the theorists are still trying to figure out how you, how you make something like this. Um, so, uh, what we've learned is that nature is sometimes very good at making things that we haven't yet figured out. Um, a capture scenario seems like it, it could uh, be the case. You might uh, think that this is uh, strengthened a bit, considering the fact that, uh, uh, as our modeling suggests, the inclination of this moon uh, with respect to the plane of the planet's orbit uh, is is quite tilted. It's about 40, 45 degrees tilted with respect to the planet's uh, uh, plane. And then that's, again, not terribly well constrained by our modeling, but that's what it suggests. Um, so that immediately calls to mind, this looks like something a little unusual happened in this case. Uh, but again, because we don't have population statistics right now, it's, it's hard to say how unusual that might be. Okay.
0: Uh, and Larry Keese has a question on Um, the naming convention for this so we have kepler data we know that there are kepler koi objects of interest the stars have are given a designation like in this case 1625 and then the first exoplanet is usually denoted with a little b right right and so why little b by the way why not little a
1: uh, I don't know the answer to that oh, question. Yeah, nobody seems to. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. I don't. I don't. I'm sure there's a good reason behind the star. I guess is A, <laughs> but uh, uh, or maybe yeah. they're leaving room. You know. But now, once they start uh, discovering planets, uh, sometimes they just discover them interior or exterior, and then the the, the letters get all kind of. I know uh, because
0: the, if it's a double star uh, system, there could be a Kepler sixteen twenty five capital A and a capital B, uh, exactly. but the planets are little little B uh, and then on down right. the road. Same with like mm-hmm. Trappist uh, the Trappist one system. Uh, exactly. Okay, what about exo Can you is there a naming convention for adding an exo moon to this? Hopefully, uh, it's not, not going to be another letter, uh,
1: so, right? So this is something that uh, the international international astronomical unit, the IAU for short. This is they'll eventually have to come down on this. I think when we start discovering more of these things. Uh, the IAU will take a stand. My personal preference is uh, to use Roman numerals. This is a a naming convention that has been used in uh, the solar system for hundreds of years. You think about the the four big moons of Jupiter, the so-called Galilean moons. These are Jupiter 1, 2, 3, and 4 uh, with Roman numerals. So uh, that is... uh, I kind of like that. It's nice and clean. And, uh, uh, you know, so that's what we've advocated for. We yeah. we called this Kepler 1625b1. Uh, then later on, we said, well, this is not a confirmed discovery at this point. We're considering this a candidate still. And so we took to using a, a, a lowercase uh, Roman numeral. Yeah, one. I can see but a real the, can
0: of worms here. You've got an object of interest and you've got a candidate, but then it's a confirmed. What if the planet is confirmed, but the moon isn't? Then you've got a moon... Candidate moon or planet, exactly planet right. Moon. Yeah, so that's oh why we
1: we started using this lowercase uh, Roman numeral. But there's uh, other opinions out there. We've been comment uh, contacted by folks who who have. Uh, opinions about what this uh, thing ought to be called. So eventually the IAU will have to- You
0: know that update. reminds me of? It reminds me of the way we categorize stars, like population one, population two, and three, but there, it, it, there's no rhyme or uh, reason to what yeah. these, right, uh, yeah. these stars are. That's what it reminds me of. Okay, so let's get to your observations and data. Now, while we're talking about this, I'm gonna go ahead and show that little animation of the data points and and all of that kind of right. stuff. Just you said you got how many orbits of Hubble data of Hubble time? Uh,
1: twenty six orbits of Hubble. This is these are orbits of the of course the telescope orbiting the Earth. That's how they sort of. And out did that,
0: that include all of the stars that you had in your survey, or was it just this star?
1: Just this single this just this single target. It's so you looked
0: of- at this star sixteen twenty five for. Those orbits. 40 hours.
1: Yeah. About 40 hours. Yeah, that's exactly right.
0: Okay. And you built up this light curve. Now I'm going to animate through the light curve while you're talking about it. Uh, it'll just loop right. so maybe go ahead and describe what what we're sure
1: yeah so uh, you know the, because we're monitoring the brightness over time this is why we have to uh, spend so much time looking at this object and the planet is uh, got an orbital period of about 287 days right so it goes it takes a long time to make one orbit of the star and you can imagine that uh, the, the longer it takes to complete these orbits the slower the transit uh, occurs so the transit of the planet by itself takes about 19 hours, um, and so uh, when we're looking for a moon, we're really looking on the wings of this planetary transit. The moon could you know, come in first, it will come, come in after the planet, and so we've got to monitor the star for a fair amount of time uh, around uh, that uh, 19 hour planetary transit. So this is why we need so much time, and this is, um, You know very pretty unusual to devote this much time to not only a single target but also to a single transit Uh, Several other observations of other transiting planets have been performed with Hubble but they usually monitor multiple transits and they're usually these hot Jupiters so they come around every single day and the timing is not uh, quite so critical so we had 26 orbits with Hubble uh, and what you can see you know Hubble is going around Uh, The earth so you'll see in the data. You'll see these little gaps Uh, Hubble can stare at the target for about 50 minutes or so at a time and then it goes around the earth And so it's blacked out for 45 minutes Um, and uh, You know, so this is this is what the data looks like we see uh, That uh, central planetary transit and then we see what we are attributing to the moon this secondary dip uh, in the data following the the central planetary transit. One other thing that I will say, you know, it's not just this dip that is uh, our case for the moon. Uh, Another key part of this analysis is that when a moon is orbiting the planet, the planet is of course pulling on the moon, but the moon is also pulling on the planet. And so uh, because of that, the planet sort of wobbles around a little bit as it uh, goes around the star. Uh, This causes what we're what are called transit timing variations meaning sometimes the planet transits early other times the planet transits late um and the, in this case the planet transited about 78 minutes earlier than we anticipated so we think there's pretty clear evidence that there are transit timing variations in this system um now that we, was
0: the pull of the moon on the planet causing that exactly variation. right
1: mm-hmm. yes that's right uh so you know we so we are attributing uh this uh, Transit timing variation, as well as this dip that we see uh, after the planetary uh, transit, uh, these these sort of two lines of evidence are the are the key parts of uh, the, the can you, case for the.
0: Moon. Can you glean from this what the moon is doing around the planet? Do you know anything about its orbital period? You said it was forty five degrees. Uh, inclined right. with respect to the planet or the ecliptic plane of the system.
1: The ecliptic plane of the system. So the yeah, the plane of the planet's transit. So you can see in this animation, if it's still running, it, it is. Yeah. How how tipped up it uh, it appears. Um, so yeah, we d- derive an inclination for the moon. We derive uh, this the what's called the semi-major axis, the orbital separation of the of the moon and the planet. Uh, and we you know we have a mass ratio, as I said before, between the, the moon and the planet. That gives us uh, the orbital period of the moon, um, which is uh, somewhere around uh, 20 days or so. Oh, uh, really?
0: You know, there's a lot about this. It's like the Earth, 287-day orbit. That's not too different from our 365-day orbit.
1: And would you say 20 days? Something like 20 days, yeah. So again, these these uh, are not terribly well-constrained by the data that we have in hand, uh, but that's uh, that's what the modeling suggests, yeah
0: okay all right and um, okay so that is how we know the uh, or that is this is your 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 evidence and this coupled with the um, transit timing variations suggests that this thing is wobbling uh, with respect to a moon that, that could be there is there anything else it could be
1: sure yeah so uh, it's certainly plausible transit timing variations have been seen many times as I said before this is the Potentially the first exomoon, but we definitely see transit timing variations in other systems. Those are uh, typically uh, due to another planet in the system. So um, th- that's a, certainly a plausible explanation. Now yeah, I was going to go there. Could there be a
0: Kepler sixteen twenty five C maybe out there?
1: Uh, right. So that's certainly plausible. The key point is that we haven't uh, observed one of these planets. That doesn't mean it's not there, of course. Um, if there were a planet external. Uh, to Kepler sixteen twenty five b, the uh, geometrical transit probability of this planet really falls off uh, very rapidly. Uh, you can imagine the farther a planet gets from the star, uh, your angle of uh, viewing has to be just right. You know, we can see a, a wide variety of angles when the planet is is close to the star, but the farther away you get, uh, it, we have to be really perfectly edge on to see it. Uh, and so, it's certainly plausible that something. Could be there, but we haven't uh, we haven't detected it. At the same time, we think we're, we're pretty sure that we haven't seen any other transits of an interior planet. Uh, we really should have been able to see that in the Kepler data, and we don't. Again, yeah, there could be something uh, out of the plane that just is not transiting.
0: Is that because uh, the plane of the inner planets are probably going to be pretty close to each other? So if you've got one, you're probably going to get others if they're there. But if you're way far out, that if it's slightly like you know, uh, in Jupiter doesn't doesn't orbit around on the exact same plane as the Earth does here. It's a little exactly bit right. different. So exactly. if it's if it's way, way out and maybe a little bit different, you wouldn't see the outer ones. I get that part. But but if there were other inner ones, Close to this,
1: right, right. Uh, So the expectation, you know, based on the solar system and based on what we've seen in other systems now, is that they are more or less uh, coplanar, meaning on the same plane, uh, but not, you know, not uh, right on uh, necessarily. When you have interior planets, though, we've got more room to work with. As I said before, the the closer you the planet is to the star. Sort of the the more wiggle room you have in terms of these uh, relative uh, inclinations. Again, there certainly could be something in the system that's just not transiting, interior or exterior. But now you're you know you're going after another uh, hypothesis that uh, uh, that hasn't been demonstrated. You know certainly plausible. Maybe Occam's razor it could be another planet in the system that we haven't seen. Uh, but that doesn't explain this dip that we see uh, in the light curve, you know, so the moon hypothesis has the, has the sort of benefit, even though it's an extraordinary claim. And we fully recognize that sure. it has the benefit of uh, being a single explanation for these uh, for these two phenomena.
0: OK, so be honest, Alex, you saw this light curve. And what was your first thought when you saw this thing? Did you did were you like, huh, what is that? Or is it must be another planet? Or what was your first thought?
1: Well, uh, you know, the, uh, we got very excited when we saw the Kepler data, the original Kepler data, uh, when we saw those signals. We thought we were getting fairly excited. And this this was really the first time, the, you know, my advisor, David Kipping, uh, has really been a pioneer in the exomoon search. And he's been working on this stuff for basically a decade. Uh, this was the first time that we had ever proposed for Hubble time. So this was, the, you know, the most promising candidate that he had ever seen. And I, you know, well, and
0: even to just get uh, Hubble time to do this had to be a strong science case. So that was really, that was really a compelling uh, part of your favorite too, because the time allocation. Exactly right.
1: Exactly right. (laughs) Now, when we saw the Hubble data, uh, You know, we have learned, both of us, uh, that you really can't eyeball these things all the time. You know, there's natural bumps and wiggles in the data uh, that might be due to the star, it could be due to the instrument. uh, And so you really, really have to put the data through its paces, make sure... That what you're seeing is uh, not instrumental and not some other astrophysical effect. Right. So that's a very painstaking process, and but it's uh, a familiar
0: one with Kepler data by now,
1: isn't it? I mean, sure. people have gone through this pretty well. Sure, but you know, but this uh, observation with Hubble in particular is uh, is pretty uh, unprecedented to look at a such a cold planet so far away from its star to look at it for so long. Um, and it's a very faint star, much fainter than uh, ordinary Hubble targets for, for transits. And so all of these things made, you know, kind of put, it us, put us in uncharted territory. So we had to, you know, really take our time with this thing. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I was always kind of expecting, you know, once the evidence started coming in that maybe this really is a real thing. Uh, you know, I kept expecting some test would come along that would make this thing uh, go up in smoke. Uh, we didn't come up with any te- – you know, ultimately, we tried to throw everything at it that we could think of, and the, the moon hypothesis uh, kept surviving. So eventually, you start to get more and more comfortable with the idea that maybe it really is a real thing. But uh, at least for myself, I didn't ever get, uh, you know, really excited because, uh, you know, we've all seen these sorts of things evaporate in the past. So you got to, you know, you got to – Tender your sure. expectations a yeah
0: exactly but my understanding is the way a lot of the kepler candidates got confirmed into exoplanets was done largely on the ground with ground-based telescopes uh can are there any can, first of all can ground-based telescopes help you here can you go to say harps or on at on eso or some other uh maybe a radial velocity telescope or something to help you with this confirmation or what do you need? Sure. What kind of observations would you ideally like now? now? Right.
1: So uh radio velocity measurements would be great. We really would like to get a firm uh, measurement of the, of the planet, for example, that would, you know, as I mentioned before, we've got a mass estimate for the planet. Uh, but it's not terribly well constrained. So if we got to radial velocity measurements, that would really nail things down great. Uh, At the same time, that might also reveal potentially another planet in the system. Um, And so that would be an important uh, sort of cross-check that we are really not (laughs) seeing, you know, that these transit timing variations are not due to another planet. Those would reveal both of those cases. Um, In terms of looking at additional transits, however, Because this uh, event is so long, as I said before, it was a 40-hour observation on on, uh, Hubble, Earth is turning. So, you know, you never get a 40-hour night uh, unless you go, in this case, really far to the north, the calculation. You have to be north of uh, 70 degrees, 78 degrees uh, northern latitude. Uh, so there's no telescopes up there. And so you can't uh, perform this observation with any single telescope on the ground, which would mean that you would have to propose for time on multiple telescopes, hope that it's... Uh, uh, not cloudy on the uh, critical uh, time of the transit, and then you'd have to stitch together a multiple heterogeneous data sets in order to, to perform an observation like the one that we did. So uh, you really have to go to space for this, and there's really only a couple of telescopes. Spitzer... Uh, could potentially do it, but really Hubble was the best game in town right so, now. So
0: yeah, so I'm trying to ma- visualize what you're saying. So because you need forty hours to get this transit, um, and the Earth spins once every twenty four, uh, right. you can't if you start at the if you were happened to start your observations luckily at dusk and it was just hitting the limb of the star, you're only gonna get however long the night is and that yeah, maybe, uh, right, yeah, the
1: farther north you go, say so it it happened in the the summer, for example, oh, yeah, uh, <laughs> in the northern north hemisphere you could, you could go, uh, you could go farther north and get more hours of. Excuse me, you'd, you'd want to perform this in the winter time, so you'd have maximal uh, nighttime. Um, so, uh, the farther north you go, you'd have longer and longer nights. Uh, but we did the calculation a long time ago and you have to go north of 78 degrees, uh, in order to get up there. And that is comfortably, ain't uh, nothing up there. Ice I, <laughs> you know, just the, the Arctic ocean. So no, no, no way to perform an observation like this with any single telescope. Well,
0: you know what this does now, right? You're an early career scientist, right? This means you can propose and get it, get, get funding for, uh, a a, uh what you can call a high latitude observatory that's what you should call it and well uh, uh,
1: antarctica might be another story but i'm afraid we're running out of ice up there i don't know uh you know (laughs) uh, a a boat uh, a boat wouldn't do too well yeah uh,
0: maybe a yeah sort of a Sophia type thing that can stay (laughs) oh hey what about something like
1: Sophia, um Uh, where you could fly you could fly you could counteract uh, the
0: earth's rotation
1: uh now the sophia uh, does it have a refueling uh, potential in the air i I don't know i don't don't know but you know now we're talking about sort of uh, (laughs) okay all right constantly in the air kind of things (laughs) okay so fine. yeah it's a long observation so what you're telling me now though (laughs) what
0: i'm getting from all this is that it's going to be hard to get Confirmation of this, you.
1: Well, yeah, we've we've asked for more time on Hubble, and we'll have to see. Uh, We should be hearing uh, not too long from now whether or not we get uh, additional Hubble time. Hubble's Hubble's scary right now. We were we were talking about this though, and. Uh, you know, we kind of thought that, uh, you know, whether people think this is real or people are very skeptical that this is real, uh, both of these camps would really want to see an additional observation of the system in order to nail it down one way or the other. So uh, hopefully we've made a, a decent enough case that, uh, that we really ought to be observing this thing one more time. Uh, the nice thing about this uh, next transit coming up in May 2019 is that we have a pretty clear Uh, prediction for what we expect this uh, transit to look like. When we had the October 2017 transit, uh, we didn't have a very clean prediction at all as to where exactly the moon should be showing up. This time it's much cleaner, Uh, and so if we could make this observation and it uh, appeared more or less like we were expecting it to, then I think that would be a pretty solid case that, that, that it's really there, but we have to see.
0: Okay. Uh, One more question. I'm going to get to the uh, live chat uh, here because there's a lot of good stuff building up. Um, I take it from this, from the sound of it, that you know when the transits are going to be. We know how long they are. It doesn't sound like TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, it's going to be helping you much here, is it?
1: Uh, well, you know, uh, I don't know terribly much about the the capabilities of, of TESS. To be perfectly honest, we've okay. we've tend to think about it in terms of the exo moon search uh, more generally, uh, looking you know using the TESS data much the way that we use the Kepler data. The big difference with TESS is that it uh, has a much shorter baseline for any particular. Right sky right It spends about 27 days or so looking at one part of the sky and then it moves on now there is a zone around the uh uh, the northern equator the uh, excuse me the 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 pole the ecliptic pole where is called the continuous viewing zone and they'll have data for about a solid year in that region of the sky uh but we're tending to think now that the moons are going to be you know fairly far away from their host stars the planets are going to be colder much more like a Jupiter or Saturn or something like this colder planets these look like they're going to be the best candidates uh, for finding the moons but those come around very very rarely and so Tess unfortunately won't see them we may be able to get lucky and see uh, a transit of this uh, planet you know if Tess just happens to be looking in the right place at the right time I'm actually not sure yet whether or not uh, this will co uh, it,
0: But if it is going to help, it's going to have to be in that continuous observing zone like you pointed out. Uh, I'm pretty
1: certain that this target is not in the continuous viewing zone. So Tess would really just have to, by chance, be pointing in the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's a real shame.
0: Because, yeah, it has to be in the sector at the time, and then it has to be doing some kind of transit during – or the planet needs to be transiting while it's looking and – Boy, that's right. just
1: not. Uh... And as far as I know, uh, the uh, test will continue. You know, the next transit's in May uh, May twenty nineteen. I think tests will still be looking at the southern sky at that point, and uh, this object is is you know, in the constellation Cygnus, it's definitely in the Northern sky. So, um, we probably won't catch it this time around, but I haven't, I haven't run this. Well,
0: there is hope though for test because after it finishes its two year survey, they're not just going to turn it off and throw it away. It's still going to be up there doing its thing. I sure. think they're going to be redoing some of the science, um, definite requirements for it after it finishes the, the initial survey. So there's still a chance. It might, tests could maybe uh, bring some light to bear on. <laughs> I like yeah, that. Yeah, I hope so. it's like, good. Whatever light you can Light to get. bear on this. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, okay, so let, let me. So on Facebook, Jeffrey Scott wants to know, other than the transit and the wobble methods, that's the radial velocity, that's where you, by the way, we didn't define that. That's where you measure a spectrum of a star and you look at its wobble of the spectral lines as the planets pull on that star. And that's how you can get how much that star how much mass that star has because how, how much it pulls how much it wobbles is an indicator of its um, of the planet's mass or whatever it is it's pulling on it so other than that other than transit and wobble are there other techniques that we have for hunting for hunting exoplanets any new techniques on the near horizon
1: uh, for hunting for exoplanets he says uh, mm-hmm. so uh, yeah to, the transits and the radial velocities those are by far the best uh, the best game in town uh, people have thought a little bit about uh, uh, micro lensing for mm-hmm. example yep. um, that uh, is what happens when you have an object uh, sort of uh, lensing light from a background star and so you can measure uh, measure the, the mass of the planet that way um, you know, there's. I think people have come. A pulsar timing is something. is actually the first exoplanet uh, discovery. I, I think in 1992, um, was uh, looking at the the subtle changes in the timing of a pulsar. Uh, uh, pulse, you know, this is a radio pulse that we get from these uh, rapidly spinning neutron stars, and they measured a slight uh, disturbance in the pulsar timing, and so they they found planets around a pulsar. It's really amazing.
0: Yeah, we did um, hang out on that once a while. About that was pretty freaky. That's a pretty freaky way of
1: yeah finding yeah it. yeah uh, yeah very clever. You know, so people come up with these very clever ideas looking for uh, exoplanets. Um, I, I'm. I'm sure there's a few others, but I'm afraid I'm. I'm well, those are the
0: it. ones I can think of too. I was going to say microlensing was the most uh, was a popular one as well. Um, right. So there's also direct imaging, um, right. but yeah. that requires right. yeah. uh, right. equipment we don't have right now, that star shades or coronagraphs. Well, you uh, know
1: we've we've managed to do some direct imaging, but it's a it's a small number of planets. You really uh, you want it to be very close. The star should be very close to our solar system because you can imagine the closer the star is the wider the sky separation of the planet. Uh, you also want this planet to be very far away. You know, we're talking 10 astronomical units or more, maybe even farther than that, something like as far away as Saturn or Uranus is from the star. And then uh, all these systems tend to be pretty young, which means that the planet is actually shining from its own uh, formation heat. We're seeing it in the infrared, and it's it's shining by its own light. It's not... Uh, uh, visible by uh, reflected light. So you put all of those uh, criteria together and you can see that, you know, even though we've been doing direct imaging for, you know, over a decade now, we still have maybe 10 or 15 uh, planets that have been directly imaged. Uh, it's very challenging work. So hopefully going forward, we'll have something like you say, uh, star shades or, or, you know, we'll be able to shrink uh, that what they call the inner working angle, how close we can get to the star uh, and be able to see the, the planet. But it's it's very challenging right now.
0: Okay, yeah. I just want to welcome hip to, hip-tacular, hip-tacular Raptor. Boy, you, on Twitch. Only on Twitch do you see these kinds of Twitter okay. handles. Anyway, welcome. I want to thank you for commenting on, on Twitch because I worry about Twitch. Twitch is like this. I got three people there. I want to thank you for watching, guys. It's really nice. Ask questions. I'm watching. I'm looking at what you're doing. So back on YouTube. Um, Galaxy wants to know, are there any astrophysical signs so that they know the star this is kepler 1625 the star is almost becoming a red giant you said it was moving uh, up the
1: right that uh again it's you know and that's not terribly uh in, in my uh realm of expertise but this is uh, uh has to do with uh, spectroscopy looking at the uh, the uh, lines the the atomic or molecular emission lines, usually atomic in the case of a star. uh, Looking at at emission and absorption lines, they analyze the spectrum of the star. From there, they can measure the uh, surface gravity of the star. So we know how far away it is. uh, We know how bright it is. We know what color it is, basically. uh, And we can measure the surface gravity of this star. So all of these uh, lines of evidence put together, you can can infer the uh, size of the star.
0: Okay, and habitable zone uh are we in it here it doesn't really matter i guess since this is a gas giant orbiting or it's a gas giant with a neptune gas giant orbiting <laughs> orbiting around i guess it doesn't matter but are we in the habitable zone here or not
1: uh yeah it sort of depends on how you define that i guess well uh, as what everybody right, else so,
0: if it had it would be liquid or right, water right, if it uh, had it would be liquid yeah
1: that's uh, <laughs> interestingly enough a, a sort of a more uh a uh, controversial definition in terms of where everybody uses. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, uh, the if, you know, equilibrium temperature that we might, uh, uh, that we derive for this planet is something like 350 Kelvin. That's pretty warm. Uh, you look at the earth, for example, the equilibrium temperature is, I think, uh, below the freezing level and what keeps our liquid water, uh, you know, in place is the is the greenhouse effect. A little bit of the greenhouse effect is a, is a good thing. It keeps us warm. It keeps oh, yeah, water, right. water liquid on, on the Earth. Uh, so this one is going to be a little hotter than that. What's interesting is that because this uh, star is, uh, looks like it's climbing the giant branch, this planet is getting warmer. Uh, than it once was and so uh, there would have been a time probably uh, that this planet was a little more temperate this planet and this moon system were a little more temperate potentially in the habitable.
0: okay time. help me with equilibrium temperature again I, i'm sick of this liquid water crap um, what 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 do you mean by an equilibrium temp- temperature uh this uh,
1: is just the temperature that you would measure uh, based on its uh, proximity to the star having no you know not taking into account at all uh the uh the, the greenhouse effect that you might have
0: oh uh, so it's the temperature it would be if you're sitting right. at that distance yeah. from a star but without an atmosphere or any green right and and, and basically pers-
1: uh, perfectly absorbing this uh this incident radiation rather than Got uh, you it. know okay so uh, all of the factors the planet is very white. Right. it's reflecting away a lot of this light and so it would be cooler so we're not taking into account
0: an understood. now understood and you said this one was how much again 300- uh about three hundred fifty Kelvin. Okay. Memory. So that's pretty that's pretty warm compared. So I have to do the conversions, okay. but um it's yeah, that's pretty hot. Uh okay. Hans Milling wants to know, we have binary stars. Couldn't binary planets exist too? Well that's kind of what we got here, isn't it?
1: Uh, Yeah, so this question has come up a lot, whether this is a planet and a moon or a binary system. Um, I think it's a matter of semantics uh, to some degree. What we're really talking about is uh, where the center of mass between these two objects is. You look at uh, Pluto and Pluto's largest, what I would call a moon, Charon, right? Uh, Pluto and Charon actually orbit a common center of mass that lies between the two objects. So some people would call that a planet and a moon. Other people would call that a binary planet. Um, As I said before, our uh, solutions for the masses of these objects is not uh, terribly well constrained, but our best estimates place this center of mass within the planet. Um, And so that, I think, is comfortably, you can comfortably call that a planet and a moon. Obviously, this object is much larger in size uh, than uh, any other moon has uh, Uh, That, Like I said, people really haven't anticipated a a moon this size, but the mass ratio is only about one, one and a half percent. And that's basically comparable to the earth and our moon. It's a little closer, uh, but that mass ratio is about the same. So, you know, even though this moon is so large, I'd call it a, I'd call it a moon still.
0: So, if if to keep that mass mass ratio the same, if uh, the uh, Jupiter had a moon that was roughly the same proportion as our moon is to us, it would be Neptune. Uh,
1: yeah, 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 more or less, yeah. And We're talking, uh, you know, again, we we're talking about a, a planet that's a little more massive than Jupiter, uh, but not terribly more yeah, massive, okay. at least as, as far as we
0: can. So, so Alex Reinders, uh, yes, when is a moon a moon or a pair of planets? I think we, I think this mass ratio kind of. Does it, doesn't it? I mean, if two planets are more or less the same, if that mass ratio is, you know, one to one, then you kind of have a pair of planets, don't you?
1: Right. Yeah. And it has to do with the separation too, right? You can imagine you get farther apart than that uh, center of mass between the objects starts to kind of drift outward a little more. And so uh, eventually it might be uh, sitting between the two objects, but uh, as uh, you know, as, as far as our modeling says, this very center, this center of mass should be uh, inside the planet. Okay.
0: Raj Luthra. What am I going to do with you, man? Here's this question. Is it possible that this exomoon may have a moon or moons orbiting it? You know, Raj, you're the one. You're the one that always wants to know about exomoons. We talk about exoplanets. What about exomoons? We talk about exomoons. What about moons of (laughs) exomoons? You're just not satisfied, are you, Raj? Okay. All right. So is that even possible? Can we have a planet in orbit around a star with a moon in orbit around a planet with another moon?
1: I don't even know. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, this question isn't uh, isn't so wild as it might seem. Uh, (laughs) It just made news in the last, uh, it was going around on Twitter. Uh, A paper came out, uh, uh, someone uh, wrote a paper asking about these things called what they call sub moons. Uh, but uh, in other circles, it was promptly called a moon moon. And yeah, Twitter is going, nuts I know that's for, what he's asking the, about. Yeah, uh, for the moon moons. Uh, so, yeah, it escalated quickly. The, this paper it was a very short paper that came out. It's only about three pages long where they analyzed the stability of a moon around the moon. And they said, you know, if this. Uh, if the moon know we're not talking about the moon moon we're talking about the regular moon uh, if this moon is large enough i'm meaning massive enough in this case if it's far enough uh from the planet uh and the moon moon or i, I think most of us prefer sub moon is probably a better term for these things <laughs> if that sub moon is is uh, small enough Uh, then you could potentially have uh, something like that stable for a long period of time. The question naturally arises, how might you form something like this? Uh, And this paper didn't really treat that. Well, the answer is is it's moons
0: all the way down. That's the answer. So Exactly right. I mean, here's what bugs me about this, though, um, Alex. I'm going to get your opinion on this. I saw that story, too. And I do a weekly or whenever I can do it, a video series called Space Fan News, where I try to pick up something that interests me, that I think is interesting to someone else, and I'll report on it. And one thing, I'm starting to see a trend. You said this paper was very short. It also wasn't peer-reviewed yet. And one of the things I'm noticing that a lot of science news websites are doing, and I want to know if you notice this too, is that they are looking at AstroPH, or AXRV, or whatever you want to call that. I call it AstroPH, which is this preprint on that Cornell runs where people can post on this whatever they want, really. and not in, But generally, astronomers only do that after they've been accepted into a peer-reviewed journal. They want to get their preprint out there so people can comment on and get the word out also to prevent being scooped. But I'm noticing a disturbing trend on the science communication side where people are starting to read AstroPH and look at the titles of papers that are interesting, and they report on it before they're even peer-reviewed. Have you noticed this? Uh,
1: yes. Well, it's it's definitely a thing. So uh, in, in terms of whether or not you should put something up on uh, the archive or ASTROPH uh, before or after peer review, there's really sort of two uh, opinions about this. Uh, I have tended to think that we should uh, wait until peer review before we put it out there because so many people – Uh, access this paper and so there's an expectation that anything on the archive or astro ph has already been uh, peer reviewed other people come down differently and say that uh, you know this is really the best peer review that you could possibly imagine rather than having a single referee assigned to you you're getting more eyes on your paper and therefore uh, more people are going to be reading it commenting on it and uh, giving you feedback except
0: that they are anybody can post on it and it, a lot of stuff can, it can be viewed. You can view Astro PH as a, an authority, but it itself right. isn't peer reviewed. And exactly someone right, can right. pick a paper off of that and think it's real science, report on it as sure. if it is. Sure. And yeah, it so, could be total crap. Uh, I've seen
1: it. You know, to in order in order to uh, post originally to this thing, uh, y- you have to be sort of verified that you're uh, that you have uh, someone vouching for you, essentially. But that doesn't uh, that doesn't stop a number of sort of uh, uh, kooky papers getting posted there every once in a while. And we usually get a, a good chuckle. Hopefully, the uh, science journalists are are, are are seeing which ones are are you know a little more legitimate. Uh, I'm I, hope this, so. This is relevant, though, because uh, when our uh, initial finding this, you know, our excellent candidate made news about a year ago, last August, Mm -hmm. uh, we first uh, got attention for this thing, because uh, in that case, we hadn't even posted anything to the archive, it came out that we were going to perform this observation with Hubble once you have a proposal to Hubble accepted, uh, they publish all of the titles and all of the abstracts for those uh, proposals. And so it was spotted that we were going to make this observation and they were going to uh, write an article about it. And we asked them not to. Uh, the, the publication, I'll, I'll leave nameless, but we asked them not to, to put this out because uh, it wasn't ready for everyone to get excited about. This was a candidate and it wasn't... Uh, it, it wasn't ready to you know the we knew everybody would get excited about the potentially the first exomoon so this was premature uh they decided well, well we're going to publish it anyway we don't just report on peer reviewed results we report on uh you know all manners of coming and comings and goings uh, with respect to the science so at that point we really got ahead of our you know we had to make a decision in very short order what should we do? And we decided to put that paper out to, on the archive uh, before peer review. So but it true. had
0: been accepted, right? Uh,
1: at that point, it had not been oh, accepted. We, oh. we were we were about to uh, so submit. So you're anxious, huh? <laughs> well, well we, you know, we, our thought process was we have to get out in front of this and show the community sure. what we're seeing, what we're claiming, and what we're not claiming, because we didn't want it treated just in the science journalism. Well, Obviously, then you – know, all kinds of sensationalism that's possible uh that we don't have control of it over what people are going to write and so we put it out in the archive for the, sp- the purpose of of being uh transparent with the community but ordinarily i'm i'm uh, i tend to be in the feeling that uh, we should wait till uh till peer review before putting it on the archive because there's that expectation right. that it is and
0: As and happens. i and i'm I, I applaud you for that and i also and i understand the need to get it out there and get in front of it before others do or to get Make sure the proper word gets put out and science communicators and and space news websites, I get that they need to get something interesting and be the first to do it. But I worry that there's not being any careful look. I mean, it does depend on the reporter uh, doing it and looking at Astro PH. Does that person know? that this is uh, uh, probably going to be peer reviewed or is it just some, somebody who's putting some fringe stuff out there? And while you're Sorry. right, there isn't that much fringe stuff there. There is some I've seen it. And, mm-hmm. and right. so I worry about in the rush to be first to publish a story, people have learned about Astro pH and now they want to, uh, uh, use it to get a scoop on things so um but when i mean one more because this interests me i want to ask about the peer review process in your in your case on this research when you posted on AstroPH, you said you had the you had the paper written were you confident that you would get into a peer review journal and how do you think about that how does that work when you write a body of research like you guys have done here with this exo moon What is the, what do you then do with, do you, do you already have a journal in mind that you want to give it to? And do you have a reasonable expectation that they're going to accept it after peer review? How does that work?
1: Really? Certainly, yeah. So uh, l- uh, I'll be clear about what happened in uh, August 2017. First, we had been writing this whole other paper, an analysis of th- uh, almost 300 uh, planets, looking trying to look at the population of exomoons. Actually, I won't go into all the gory details about that. And it was justin, and that paper was basically ready to be submitted to to a journal, uh, but uh, but uh, at the sort of the last minute because we had to get out in front of this. We dropped in a whole new section about uh, our candidate, 1625B, and that's what we put up put up on the archive. I think we had confidence uh, that uh, our analysis was very thorough. Uh, we really knew what we were doing, and, uh, you know, as I mentioned before, David Kipping is uh, not just a pioneer in exomoons, but really... Um, Uh, You you know, he he knows what he's doing here. So uh, that's not an expectation that there aren't problems with your paper uh, because there's always going to be things, you know, this is part of the process. The referee reads your paper and says – okay, well, this looks pretty good, but this is a problem or you can't make that assumption or this is wrong. You know, look at those numbers, explain this to us better. Uh, You know, there's a lot of back and forth and you will get pages and pages and pages of notes uh, from the referee sometimes telling you, you've got to make all of these changes before it's accepted. Uh, But uh, in general, you know, we're... uh, we, we have a sense that this paper will be uh, worthwhile once it's, uh, once it's passed this uh, peer review. process. Yeah.
0: That's different than if you know, there's no intention whatsoever of a journal ever taking it, but you post it there in the hope that people will read it. And while I said that, while I agree, that's not a huge problem on Astro It is something I have seen from time Definitely. to time. Uh, Jeffrey Scott has a good question on, Facebook let me ask you this one will the new class of large observatories like the 30 meter telescope the extremely large telescope the stupendously amazing super ultra mega telescope that are being built in around the world will they will they be directly will they be able to help you uh, in this research and can you directly observe exoplanets with them do you know.
1: Uh, I don't know terribly much about the direct imaging. I think they will be uh, great uh, for direct imaging, but uh, but that's a little out of my uh, area of expertise. Uh, these mirrors, because they are so large, we can expect to get incredible uh, photometric precision. You know, each data point that we take, every measurement that we make of the brightness of the star will have some uncertainty, right? There's all kinds of... Uh, Things that you know, Just noise in the data is inevitable, uh, but the noise uh, will be very, very small for these extremely large uh, mirrors, and so that's going to be fantastic. We'll be able to see smaller and smaller signals. Remember that uh, the expectation, even though we found such a large moon in this case, or we think we found a large moon in this case, moons are expected to be about the size of the Earth or smaller. Right. Um, so uh, these dips are very, very small and are almost always, uh, at least in the Kepler data, going to be lost in the noise. So we might, uh, you know, with these giant mirrors, we're going to do much better and we could really possibly see these dips. Uh, the bigger issue is that, you know, we still have to we think. Uh, look at much colder planets, and so those uh, t- transit durations are very long. Yeah. That uh, complicates, as I said still before, got that Earth rotation problem, uh, don't you? <laughs> observation from the from the ground, yeah. So, uh, still, you know, all kinds of new challenges going after these things. All right, cool. All right,
0: and uh, Jeffrey, let me just point out: you're gonna want to watch the telescope talk professional version uh, of our hangout next, not this coming Tuesday, but the following Tuesday, which I think is the 23rd. I've got the director of the TMT uh, on to talk about the uh, what's going on with the 30 meter telescope. So you wanna check that out. That's a Tuesday on Telescope Talk. At Tuesday Telescope Talk. I love the alliteration of that uh, in a couple weeks. So you want to check that out. Okay, I think we are done. Let me just do a real quick scan on some of the questions here. I'm looking for the big question mark. Um, uh, Alex Destland wants to know real quick, and then we got to go because we're out of time. Uh, how far away is Kepler and where is it in the sky? It is leading the earth in its orbit uh, as around the sun. So it's never in one spot in the sky. I think, I forget if it's a million miles ahead of us or, or how far away it is. But as the Earth goes around the sun, Kepler is ahead in that same orbit doing its observation so it's following along on earth's orbit around the sun and for a long time for the first five years it was only looking at the constellation cygnus the entire time but since then the reaction wheels have have uh, failed and problems have happened on the spacecraft such that it could no longer look at one spot so now they they're using they were using solar pressure to hold it steady while they looked at the end all of the stars along the ecliptic plane that's the path that the sun follows or, or the earth follows around the sun and so uh, that that now it was doing a lot more science as K2. They renamed it K2. But now uh, it's back in safe mode. Uh, it's like super out of fuel. It's running on fumes right now. And they don't know how much longer it's going to last. But they're in campaign 19, I believe. And uh, they might get data. They might not. It's one of those things where they didn't put a gas gauge on Kepler. So they don't know exactly how much it's got. But it isn't much and um poor old hubble's having trouble too i hope you get hubble time i really do alex because um it looks like it's also going to be hobbling on one gyro for a while so hopefully
1: yeah we'll have to see about that uh you know i'm not uh, i'm not as uh, necessarily worried about it i think that's uh, you know like so many things there's a lot of uh sensationalism maybe or you know yeah, people freaking what... out on twitter news news gets out and it gets blown out of proportion i think uh you know if we're awarded that time we should be able to get some some science out of, you know some good science out of hubble uh but you know we mu- we might be dealing with the new uh difficulties that we we didn't have
0: yeah that's one reason i wanted to pick I, I'm, I'm when carol comes back i'm going to pick her brain on this on the next hangout because she's the hubble uh project scientist there so i'm going to ask her about this uh this business nobody seems worried everybody says hey it could, it's it, it's going to point just fine on one gyro uh if it has to it's not great it's not ideal but it can and, it's done it before, and- And we'll keep another one in spare if they can't get this third one that that went wonky uh, to work again. Right. If you actually,
1: if you look at the K2 data, this, you know, K2 was, uh, as you were mentioning, the secondary, you know, second life of the Kepler telescope. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of drifting going on in this data. So it was not nearly as stable. I mean, it was really still remarkable, but it was not at all. Uh, as stable as uh, the original Kepler mission, and uh, folks came up with uh, really uh, clever ways of dealing of dealing with that data. So uh, we'll we'll make Hubble work some one way or another as long as it's uh, it's still as long as it's still pointing. Okay.
0: All right, Alex. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for taking time out to be on our hangout. I hope if you do get more Hubble time, or if you do get some kind of confirmation, you'll consider coming back and letting us know uh, what's going on and how, and what what whether this thing's been confirmed or not.
1: I'd be happy to. Thanks so much for having right. me.
0: Thank you, Alex. And and best of luck uh, on future and future observations. Okay, folks. Well, that is it for this uh telescope for this uh, uh Astro Coffee hangout. Um next Thursday is um future in space with Harley Thronson and I don't have the topic yet for it. However, Tuesday, we got uh, telescope talk every Tuesday at three o'clock. Now, as you know, I try to switch back and forth between pro and amateur version. Uh, but we've got two pro versions in a row because of scheduling issues on the on the astronomers. Next week, I'm talking with Hector Sokas Navarro from the Institute of Astronomy in the Canary Islands in La Palma, and he's going to talk about Clark ExoBelts, which is a techno signature that people look for for the satellites around exoplanets. So you're going to want to you're going to want to watch that. He's doing that from a ground-based observatory in the Canary. And then the following week, like I said before, we've got the 30 meter telescope project manager on uh, to talk about the status of that mission. It's a 30 meter telescope big, huge, massive being built now, or at least it's been going to be starting, I think, next year. So tune in next Tuesday and then the following Tuesday for that. So that is uh, what we've got coming up. I have a big announcement coming up probably next week on some sponsorship stuff, which I'm excited about. So I'll let you guys know about that when it happens. And on behalf of my guest, Alec Tici, I want to thank you all so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up.